We never know where life will lead us or what may hinder us along the way. But while every day can feel like one big question mark, it doesn't have to. With the right insights, strategies, and solutions from Western and Southern Financial Group, together we can look ahead to leave the unknown behind. understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco. And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So Who cares about what people think about us. Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome into the PFF NFL podcast. Steve Pelizzolo back here with Sam Monson. It is our midweek podcast. Just you and I. We just get to go to town for an hour here, ramble about whatever we want. Nice. So, so let's do that again. Remember, we've added a midweek show. We're here on Wednesdays. We're here on Mondays, reviewing all the action. Thursdays, previewing all the action. Midweek, it's it's wide open, so we can talk about anything. And we're going to start with the Richard Sherman signing, both by PFF and by the <laughs> Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Richard Sherman. Breaking news on the new Richard Sherman podcast, powered by PFF. Uh, Richard Sherman has officially signed with the Tampa Bay Bucks, and he's also back on the PFF podcast network. So, uh, Richard back with us, and uh, he's got his own podcast to tell his own side of all of the stories. Breaking his own news. Yeah, he broke the signing. You, you were, you thought Schefter was gonna. I thought there was a pretty good chance that he would get scooped by Schefter. Yeah. yeah. Like, how long can something like that stay? Under wraps whilst agreed before pretty, Schefter knows. It's pretty simple. Richard talks to Jason Light and says, look, I'm starting, I'm spooling up a new podcast. Yeah. Just don't say anything to anybody until I announce it on the podcast. And I'm sure he wouldn't, but like a bunch of people in the organization had to know. One of them's got Schefter's phone number. You think Mike Greenberg would do it? No, Mike's, Mike wouldn't do that. I'm just surprised that nobody who knew about this, there's a lot of people. Jackie? You think Jackie would? Sent Schefter a text and is like, hey, look what I got. Like, I got some news. I know something you don't know. It didn't Bra- happen. Brady would have done it. <laughs> Brady would have sold him out. Everything was kept under wraps and Sherman signing with Tampa Bay, which let's, is, I think, a pretty good signing. Let's discuss that from a, from a football standpoint now because Sherm, uh, getting up there in age, he is our highest-graded quarterback uh, cornerback uh, since he entered the league. One of the best to get his hands on the ball. Passer rating is just minuscule throwing into his coverage. It's, been, it's one of those things that tends to fluctuate for corners, but Sherman's been incredibly consistent in that, in that way. My question here. This is the first time he's in a different system mm-hmm. in his entire career. First time he's on not on the West Coast as well. First time he's not on the West Coast. First time he's not uh, just a left corner playing cover three, cover one. We always talk about the Legion of Boom and having three-fourths of their secondary not only being among the best players at their respective positions, but being the legitimate prototypes for that system, right? You are looking for a Richard Sherman left corner and an Earl Thomas free safety and a Cam Chancellor strong safety. So Sherm's the prototype for a different system, maybe not Todd Bowles' system. Still going to play a lot of zones, still have to understand route concepts and everything, but it's a bit of an adjustment for him. Passer rating into his coverage for his career 
is 54. Like, that's ridiculous. The average passer yeah. rating right now is like 90-something. And if you target Sherman, it drops to 54. That's for his entire career, including, you know, the last couple of seasons that were, weren't as good as that. The first few were absolutely ridiculous. Um, Sherman is, I think, a really intriguing cornerback. One, he's obviously big and physical and has a lot of the things that the Bucks like in cornerbacks. But two, like, it, it sounds obvious and self, like, clear that he's he's – He's really smart. Went to Stanford, right? Obviously, he's smart. But it shows up when you watch him play. Like, he understands route concepts. He knows what tendencies are. And, you know, everyone sort of says, well, he's old. He's not going to have the athleticism. And he's going to be too slow, get beat all the time. But he's smart enough to offset so much of that because he understands where the ball is going to go. And as he was saying in his podcast, like, look, Speed is important, but it, it really isn't everything. Like, if you're a 4-2 guy, but you have crappy technique, you're going to get beaten by five yards in a go route. It's right. just 4-2 is not going to be what saves you. Um, and the reverse is true. If you have amazing technique and you consistently play correctly and use your hands and use your footwork, even if you run like a 4-7, you're not getting torched by a dude that's 4-3 because he never gets the separation to be able to just run around you, which you need. So I think Sherman has a chance to make a real impact on that defense a little bit like Antonio Brown did on the other side of the ball last year. The few times you remember over the last couple of years, he did get burned deep by uh, Devontae Adams in the playoffs a couple of years ago. On, um, I think it was in the playoffs on the way to the playoff run by Sammy Watkins yeah. in the Super Bowl. There, so him. the few times when he does have to play man coverage against a, a speedy receiver, you know, he can, he can be had. But again, we're talking about a Bucks defense that runs as much zone. You know, they're top five in, in just playing zone as far as a, as a percentage, right? So the Bucks play, they play a lot of cover two, they play a lot of cover three, they play a lot of quarters. Uh, quarters and cover three are similar in the, just in the in the cornerback technique, right? You're playing off, you're generally, you're reading the receiver through, uh, reading the quarterback through the receiver, all of the things that Richard excels at. Then you talk about specifically what happened Sunday against the Rams when uh, D Delaney has to come in, he's got no experience, the Rams had a field day scheming it up against the Bucks secondary that had inexperience, had injuries, uh, a bunch bunch concepts. They had a bunch formation on the goal line, wide open touchdown for Matthew Stafford because of a miscommunication. Those are the types of things we're talking about because, again, the Bucks aren't going to be running man coverage 50% of the time. It might be 20% of the time. And uh, so Sherm has some time. Um, Bruce Arians just came out and said a lot of people have to get hurt for Sherm to play this week right. against the Patriots. He needs about a week to get ready. Sure. Jamel Dean practiced again, and you mentioned they have Carlton Davis, they have Jamel Dean. Those guys are monsters. You add Sherman to the mix, you just have some some depth. Yeah, I, I mean, I think for a long term thing, this is this is a reaction. I think to the not to the injuries specifically in terms of hey, a couple of guys went down. We need Sherman in the building right now because we need a cornerback. It's hey, look, a couple of guys went down, and if that happens in Week 17, and we roll into the playoffs down a couple of cornerbacks, we've just seen what the Rams can do to us. We need a yeah. contingency plan. So this might even be a thing for down the road. Hey, if this hits again, you know, we go down a couple of cornerbacks. Now Sherman can come in, start in the playoffs if we need that to happen, and we're okay. We're not going to get lit up because we have a couple of cornerbacks that aren't ready. So I think this is very much a long-term uh, insurance policy rather than a short-term fix. But I think it has the potential to pay off for them. Well, that's the that's the question too, right? The the guy who got hurt first was Sean Murphy Bunting, their slot corner. Ross Cockrell has pretty much uh, replaced him. Then Jamel Dean goes down in the Rams game. So if Jamel Dean and Carlton Davis, the big outside corners, are back, 
do you even put all three of those guys out on the field? I don't know. And it might be better for Sherman's health just to kind of wait in the wings, see a few reps every single week, and then, again, be there um, if injuries strike again. Just to repeat ourselves for the thousandth time, or at least myself, the one thing that can slow the Bucks down, I think, secondary injuries, secondary regression, the idea that teams – we talk about teams being smart against the Chiefs, right, being aggressive – Teams are being smart against the Bucs. They are seeing a lot of early down passes. They, they are seeing a lot of teams giving up on the run, which then, you know, it, it's just teams are coming out trying to score a lot of points against the Bucs, which sounds ridiculous, but they're doing it in an aggressive way, throwing the ball. So um, pass coverage is an important part of the Bucs, you know, repeat uh, ability to repeat here. Yeah. So go download the Richard Sherman podcast, subscribe, do all those kinds of things, and uh, listen to what Richard has to say. Oh, by the way, one other <laughs> aspect of this. Tom Brady started the recruiting process. He did. Tom Brady reached out, and then later on, you know, once it was established that, hey, we've got some mutual interests here, Should we, that's when the Bucks got involved. Do we, do we have to talk about the book that's coming out, the Brady-Belichick book? Do we? I don't know. But I, I, don't, I don't love things that are all, like, second, third hand. Not, then Belichick actually said the same thing at, the, at his press conference today. I mean, it'd be like, it'd be like a, imagine a book that came out about Neil. Okay. And, and we never talked to Neil. It was just you and I. <laughs> just just me just you and i giving all the quotes about neil yeah i i love neil i'm just saying maybe there we would be like there was that one time when he got really mad at me and i'm mad at him and you know when you're talking about your boss second and third hand a lot of times the, the negative stuff comes out i mean so I was that's just... gonna be the book that's the book that's being sold about brady and belichick sure um and, and bob Kraft. i was just interested in you know again this aaron Rodgers stuff where all Rodgers wants to do is be part of the recruiting process and help. You know, I'm Aaron Rodgers. I should be able to assist in recruitment or giving my two cents on who we should be going after and all these kinds of things. And the Packers just seem to have no interest in letting that be a thing. And then you've got Brady over here. Like any time, like, hey, we got a couple of cornerback injuries. I'm going to call up Sherman and get the ball rolling on that. And then the Bucks are like, yeah, that seems like a pretty good idea. Let's go. Everyone's involved. Everyone's in. Like Dude. a few weeks later, the signing happens all because like Brady just decided, hey, let's pick up the phone and see what happens here. Now, of course, I'm going to contradict myself. Do you buy into a lot of, is it James Jones that has had a not so great relationship with Aaron Rodgers? Uh, couple, no, uh, it's um, Michael Finley. Greg Jennings, right? Greg Jennings and Michael Finley. There's at least two guys. Yeah. There's, you know, former pass catchers who are like, oh, you know, stupid Aaron. We don't, we don't love Aaron. Um, does, is that part of what also separates Brady though, right? Like he can call these guys and they want to play for him, whether it's Gronk. Like Gronk wants to either win WWE titles or play with Brady. Like that's his, those are his two I, options. I don't, what's the downside? Like there's no, there isn't a group of people who are on the fence about playing with Aaron Rodgers until Aaron Rodgers phones them up and they're like, oh, I'm out now. Like if the people that didn't, the people that didn't like Aaron Rodgers are not in at any point, right? So it doesn't matter. The people that, no, I'm not saying don't make him call. I'm just saying, like, is this is this more of a Brady specific thing where he was the he was the attraction in New England? Because think about it, a lot of people complain about playing in New England, complain about yeah, I th that look, stuff that Brady was the attraction, and now he's the attraction in Tampa Bay. But I think and he's the allure. But the attraction is All Pro quarterback MVP yeah. that gives you a chance to win a Super Bowl. Like the fact whether or not the guy is pleasant, friendly, or an asshole, I think is relatively irrelevant. It's like. Does this, guy, does this guy give us a great chance of winning a Super Bowl in any given year? Which is always true for Tom Brady. It's pretty much always true for Aaron Rodgers. It's true for Patrick Mahomes. Like, these guys 
are a draw. So if you have one of those guys, why would you not involve him in this whole process? I just, we just, I'm amazed by the constant stream of evidence that says everybody other than Aaron Rodgers just gets that as part of the, as part of the standard operating procedure. And then Rodgers is sitting there having to float, like having to create entire off-season strops and melodramas just to get Randall Cobb back in the building. Then there was a story that Bill Belichick and Eric Mangini almost got into a fist fight. I saw that, yeah. Those are, so, I don't know if all the good stories came out on ESPN.com, right? but there's some, there's some goodies in there already. You know what struck me about that story? What's that? It's like Eric Mangini went for him, you know, across a crowded room, tried to go and like jump on Belichick essentially, and was restrained. Why would you let it happen? Hold me back. Let that happen. Like if you're one of the guys that restrained him, right? If you had just instead taken a step back, that would have been a hell of a better story. Mancini jumps on Belichick, starts pounding his lights out. Then you can pull him off and be like, okay, he's had enough. You know, he's had enough. That's, that's it. But that would have been a hell of a story. After beating him down. But instead it's like Mancini almost started a fight, but was, you know, we stopped it happening. He was then restrained. Uh, tweet out to the folks that we're going to break down the C.J. Henderson trade as well. But first, week three of football's in the books, and it's time to review the tape and get ready for week four with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. And to kick off another action-packed week, DraftKings is giving all new customers $150 instantly when they bet $1 on any football game. You don't want to miss this. You head to DraftKings Sportsbook app now and place a $1 bet on any week four game, and then you receive $150 in free bets instantly. You don't want to miss it because it's a no-brainer. $150 in free bets instantly. And if the sportsbook's not yet available in your state, DraftKings still has huge cash, prize, cash prizes up for grabs all season long with their daily fantasy contest. They also are giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. It's all at DraftKings. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code PFF to receive $150 in free bets when you place a $1 bet on any football game. It's promo code PFF this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. I wonder if Sherm needs a terms and conditions guy. Mm-hmm. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana. Indiana. 1-800-GAMBLER. Oh. oh, yeah. I'm a system reader yeah. is the thing. If uh, I saw he, he read his own ad, but I didn't check to see if he did his own terms and conditions. Maybe that ad isn't ha- doesn't have a terms and conditions. It was just, you know, buy whatever. Yeah. And then you don't need them. But for, but for the... With gambling ones, it's when you need some terms that's when you, and conditions. I'm a DraftKings specialist. Yeah, yeah. So maybe if DraftKings is involved over there. Well, I'm sure he listens. Look, Richard, if you need a terms and conditions guy, Steve's, Steve's waiting. All right, so let's get into the C.J. Henderson trade. So 2020, first-round pick C.J. Henderson. We'll review what that yeah. what this actually Last means. year. Right. <laughs> but C.J. Henderson has been traded from the Jacksonville Jaguars along with a 2022 fifth-rounder in exchange for Dan Arnold – the tight end from the Panthers in a 2022 third rounder. So Dan Arnold, um, this is a need for the Jaguars. The tight end room yeah. we've talked about a lot is uh, poor, to say the least. And Dan Arnold is a big-bodied receiving tight end. Yes. So he'll see some, some options there, uh, some targets. C.J. Henderson was a first-round pick last year. Number and nine overall, not just a first-round pick. Number nine overall. And so the three, and the top three corners off the board were Jeffrey Akuda, yep. C.J. Henderson, and A.J. Terrell. Yes. Uh, there were people around the NFL that had C.J. Henderson as the top corner because that's what happens a lot of times with cornerback evaluation. They're all over the place. Right, and the Jags passed up a trade offer to move down not a lot of spots, like five spots maybe, uh, to take C.J. Henderson. I mean, this was... <clears throat> 
We were lower, I think, on C.J. Henderson than a lot of people at draft time. But as you say, there were people that thought he was the number one corner on the board, and the Jags took him at nine, having passed up a decent deal to move down a few spots. Like That's how much they liked him a little bit more than 12 months ago. Right. Now they want rid of him at all costs. So it's a there's, – there's – there's a leftover from that regime. It's not a completely new regime there, but it's a new coaching staff, right? Yes. So that's that's a big part. And of this it. was being talked about like before the season. Like this was this is not a reflection of what he's done in the first couple of weeks. This is the inevitable conclusion of something that's been talked about for a few months of hey, this coaching staff for whatever reason does not like CJ Henderson. Right. And then their offseason moves, remember we said somewhat curious, grabbing Shaquille Griffin outside corner, drafting Tyson Campbell, big long outside corner. Not that, you know, Campbell's played a little bit in the slot already, and the NFL is doing a lot more with big slot corners. But again, that's C.J. Henderson's position. So something was curious as recent as recently as the draft. Now, C.J. Henderson's on-field performance through not a lot of time, because he was hurt for much of last year. He's only played 680 total snaps, only 385 in coverage. 64, sorry, get preseason ticked here. He's in the 50s, though, Mm-mm. grade-wise. Both years. 57.9 year one, 51.5 through, you know, 100 snaps this year. Right. So there is this element of he hasn't exactly lived up to number nine overall. Right, but neither is anybody from last year's draft class. Like, this right. is the thing. Last year's cornerbacks were torched as a group. The average target going to a rookie corner last year generated a pass rating of 113. Now you can say, look, pass rating isn't a great stat for measuring things, but the grade is the same, right? The grade sucks for all those first-year guys as well. And the point is it does give you a pretty good uh, indication of how the passing game is functioning, which is to say very well when you were targeting rookie corners. So none of those guys were doing well. Like Jalen Johnson was the best of the group, arguably, after a really hot start, and that came down to earth pretty conclusively as well, and he was just okay for most of the season. Same thing with like A.J. Terrell, who surprised a lot of people, but again, was just like, I mean, all right. We're not a massive liability out here. That's about as good as we're getting. Jeffrey Akuda was lit up for the entire rookie season. Um, we kind of put that down a little bit to the scheme that he was in. C.J. Henderson, again, really hot start, like a couple of good games right away, and then really badly faded over the course of the year. So, yeah, he hasn't shown anything yet. On the other hand, I'm not sure any of those guys really have. Like Jalen Johnson, I guess, is the one you're most confident in. Uh, Trevon Diggs is having a really good start to a second year. Christian Fulton. Yeah, but jumped. like two games from for him. He's, he's, but he's jumped into the conversation because yeah. it's, that, it's that thin. Two-year coverage grades for last year's cornerbacks, there's there's really not much. Diggs, Diggs is the top guy. Yeah. Cameron, Cameron Dantzler is up there, and he's not even seen the field yes. for the Minnesota Vikings. Those are the only two guys who have played significant time with a coverage grade over 70. So right. to your point, last year's cornerback class, not great. But it's So this becomes intriguing because Carolina's defense is the number one defense in the NFL right now in terms of a whole bunch of statistical categories. Uh, we just put up the defensive rankings on pff.com, and if I'm not mistaken, having written them, uh, I'm pretty sure the Panthers were number two. So they have Tier a little... Yes. No, no, no. Number two, oh. I believe. Um, so they have a, like a legit defense. I think that's definitely a, a for real thing. But they just lost J.C. Horn, their top rookie corner from uh, this year, who was being asked to do an awful lot for them. Like they were moving him around. They were putting him in the slot. They were giving him good matchups and seeing what he could do. I'm kind of intrigued to see what they uh, do with a guy like C.J. Henderson, who is another one of these big-bodied, strong, physical corners. 
He doesn't have, I think, J.C. Horn's um, kind of aggressiveness in coverage, but he's got some skills to bring to the table. Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. That's the intriguing part down the road here. The um, yeah, the yeah. other part, number two overall. They're number two right. overall. Great. Yeah, I mean, we we talked about it on the daily today when we talked about you know which of the three and O teams are for real and which ones are not. Uh, so it's on the PFF NFL daily. We talked about how four te- the top four PFF coverage grades in the NFL from a team standpoint, all those teams are three and O. So they're all discussed. Um, maybe we'll talk about that more in a little bit. Um, our guy, Brad Spielberger too, contract expert also reminds us that 65% of Henderson's four year rookie contract has already been paid right. by the Jaguars. So 60% of that comes through a signing bonus. So Jacksonville is going to have dead cap of over 3 million this year and 6 million in 2022. So on the other hand, remember how people used to say like, if Bill Belichick calls you for a trade, maybe you just hang up. Like don't, don't listen to the conversation. Um, not to give all the credit to Belichick, but if, if a team just drafted a guy and they're willing to take on over almost $10 million in dead cap the year after he was drafted in the first round, is that a warning or is that like, sure, exchanging a third and a fifth and a tight end, it's, it's worth the risk because he's still a first-round talent and we'll see if this is just a better situation for him. I mean, you would it's not a good sign, right? Like anytime yeah. your team is willing to drop kick you out of the building a year after they draft you, uh, it's not good. I would hope that if you're Carolina, when that conversation started, at the very least, you're like, hey, how come you're moving on from him? You yeah, know? Right. And look, maybe it is just, hey, new coaching staff, they want to do something different. They really didn't like him as a prospect. Dress that up a little bit. Yeah, they like the guy they drafted this year. Like, there's reasons, you know, that make some sense. Um, on the other hand, maybe there is some stuff that you have to bear in mind, which doesn't mean, again, that you don't make the deal. But if they're like, hey, yeah, look, he's like, I'll level with you. He's a bit of an asshole. He doesn't necessarily practice full. Like, I'm not saying any of this is the case for C.J. Henderson, but it's possible that that is true. That's why they don't love him. That's why they were willing to get rid of him. And you would still be willing to take that risk if you're Carolina because you just lost your first-round rookie and you maybe are going to be pretty good this year and go on a run of wins. And it would really help having a guy like that in the building. And it's a gamble, right? It's, it's something that's worth taking a risk on. So again, I'm not, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it is literally just a scheme thing and they don't like a player of his skill set um, and want to cash in on whatever they can get for him. But it is possible there's other stuff going on as well. Intriguing from the Panthers too, who gave up. They've, they've now given up. I think it's rounds two, three, and four next year in the draft. Uh, they're still as, as good as they're looking so far. A lot more turnover probably needed on this roster going forward. But I'm really intrigued by when J.C. Horn gets back. The possibility of J.C. Horn and C.J. Henderson as the you know two of the guys in that cornerback room going forward. A couple former you know back-to-back first-round picks and back-to-back top 10 first-round picks. And so the potential's there. It's a low-risk move i think by the panthers right and they third and a fifth exchange but also dan arnold yeah to to the jaguars he could be helpful and they still have dante jackson as well that becomes like a really intriguing cornerback group yeah in addition to everything else in that defense shaq thompson flying around everywhere the defensive line just murking people jeremy chin behind them like that that starts to get really intriguing for a defense that's already doing really really well agreed um i mentioned with the jaguars and i said this in the preseason i really thought trevor lawrence just needs a Needs a pass-catching tight end. Like, he needs a, a friendly outlet. And uh, Dana Jeremiah was actually talking about it today, looking at all of Trevor Lawrence's interceptions and how most of them were a cover-two type of look. And they were a look where he threw the ball down the field and had an option open right. underneath, right? And it's like, 
Jacksonville has to try to – I'm always over here preaching aggressiveness. Yeah, just chucking it down the field, chuck it down the field. And I believe that strongly when it comes to Trevor. But you take the check down when it's there. Like when the read dictates it, you throw the ball underneath. And I'm wondering with, you know, with Dan Arnold as a more, a more dependable option than they've had at tight end, that maybe that just opens up some of the easier throws, you know, the short I stuff over to, the middle. I need to look at this. But it, it feels like cover two is like rookie quarterback kryptonite. Yeah. It's like – for regular veterans, it's like the easiest coverage in the NFL to decipher. And, you know, when you've got Lovey Smith out there with the Texans running cover two constantly, it's like they're just getting gashed, like ripped to pieces with a dig route every time. For rookies, it's like, what is this witchcraft? Why is this corner looking like he's going to drop away and then just sitting there where and, I want to throw the ball? But our perception of that is also skewed a little bit because we watch, we would be in the office at times watching old Peyton Manning games and like his first three years in the league when he kept throwing the ball to Ty Law, it was like cover two. Ty, it was when everybody in the NFL is running a ton of cover two and Peyton had serious issues right. with it. But then even like, and in college as well, like every now and again, a team breaks out cover two and the quarterback in college, is like he's never seen this before. Was it Jared Goff that threw like three picks and a half against Washington State? He because threw a they ton, just, yeah. Because there was one game though where they just kept running cover two. Sinking and Jared corners, Goff had yes. no clue what he was looking at and just kept pitching the ball right to the cover two corner. Um, it's bizarre. Now it might, this might be 100%, you know, survivorship <clears throat> bias or whatever. Just in my brain, I keep think, seeing all these rookie quarterbacks like really struggling against cover two, but there might actually be something in it. I'm going to look at that at some point. Yeah, we should look at it. Maybe live on the show. No, no, don't. All right. So, uh, good trade. Good trade by, uh, I think it's definitely good for the Panthers. Um, I, Getting a pass-catching tight end is good for the Jags. Anytime you're moving on from, like, a top-10 pick after a year, it's not great, is it? I mean, even, and it becomes more difficult when you have sort of changed regimes because, like, what does the new regime care? What the old one did, right? But institutionally, it just doesn't look good that we're cashing in this giant asset from a year ago for pennies on the dollar. Yeah, it's never good. Uh, so we titled this Biggest Surprises. Through, through, through week three, you want to go through some? Yeah. What's your biggest surprise through week three? Of course. It's the Carolina Panthers. That's what you had to start off with. Yeah, let's there. go through some. What are yours? Oh, um, I just figured you had a bunch. The, the best part about our Wednesday show here is we could just freestyle it a little bit. The let's Panthers, just talk some ball. The Panthers are definitely one, but... See, I set you up. I gave you an answer. Yeah, it was nice. I didn't put you on the spot. But their schedule was very beneficial. Um, and I think if you were looking at that a little bit harder going into the year, you would be more inclined to see an optimistic view of how this could have gone. But I will say that Sam Darnold has been much more impressive than I expected him to be, even with that caveat of, hey, it's, been, it's, like, it's quarterbacking on easy mode right now. Um, the Raiders have been really impressive. Denver have been really impressive. Again, Denver has a lot of the same caveats in terms of opposition, and their season hasn't really started yet. Um, the other thing I think that's been surprising is just how badly this rookie group has struggled, the quarterbacks. like We were, we, we were three weeks away from saying, what if these guys are like the 83 draft class, right? What if this is Marino and Jim Kelly and Elway? All of them look good in preseason, okay? It's only preseason, but look, like, look at them all. Mac Jones looks cool, calm, and collected. Zach Wilson just makes it look effortless. You know, okay, Trevor's made a couple of mistakes, but the amazing is incredible. Yeah. Trey Lance, Justin Fields, like, this was – none of these guys look bad. This is amazing. And then three weeks later, it's like every one of them sucks. Mac Jones is the only one that hasn't, like, absolutely 
just pooped his pants in the middle of a game and then lit it on fire. And all of his stuff's been up to 10 yards. Every completion's been up to 10 yards. Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson, I think, are 1-2 in turnover-worthy plays. Trey Lance can't can't get on the field, even against a team that couldn't defend a read option from Jared Goff. Justin Fields finally got put out there, and it was like the worst game anybody's ever played in the history of mankind. Not just him, but like the entire offense, (laughs) top to bottom. Like, I didn't expect all of them to look this bad right away. Yeah, I will agree with you on that surprise. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe we overrated preseason a little bit. So, it'd be great if we had a theme to this and you just have this takeaway. Well, here's why it's happening. And I just don't know if there's a good one. Like one of the themes would be like, well, Zach Wilson just never faced pressure at BYU. The game's just too fast for him. Trevor never, Trevor always had the best group of receivers to throw to there. And same with fields and the, all these guys just had these in Mac Jones. That was all we talked about at Alabama. Therefore they're adjusting. And maybe that is, maybe that is the theme, but we're also one year removed from Justin Herbert Looking really, really good. We're three years removed from Baker's rookie season. Looking really, really good, right? I mean, so it's not like rookie quarterbacks haven't come in, and Baker was coming from a great situation at Oklahoma. Yeah. An easy, quarterback-friendly situation That's at Oklahoma. It's, and hit the ground running. It's not even like you can say, hey, maybe you actually want to lean into the quarterbacks that have had a really tough situation in college. And because, that was Herbert a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. So it's not even like you can just say that because you only have to reverse a little bit and you get Baker Mayfield who came out of this situation where like one of the negatives from him as a draft prospect was, well, the situation's just too easy in Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah. In Burrow, right? I mean, those are are guys that have done pretty well. guys that have done well right out of the gate don't even share a common theme. It's very difficult to trace any logic from what's happening. The only thing, and I think we've said this before, it just, even if you recognize it as a thing, it doesn't mean that you don't still fall into the bear trap of it, is to me, preseason is... Just because you're good doesn't mean you're going to be good. But if you're bad, it's a concern. I think if, if it's like a – it's just ticking a box. If you suck in preseason, I would say there's very little chance of you being a rookie quarterback and coming in dominating, right? If you're good in preseason, it evidently doesn't mean that you're going to be good in, in the regular season. It's just you need to show that you're good in preseason in order for us to, like, not even think about that. But we still have to then concern ourselves about whether that flies – once the real bullets start in, in the regular season. And so far for all these guys, it hasn't. Like They all dominated in preseason, more or less, and none of them have dominated so far. Did we also underrate their situations? Yeah, and well... I feel like I talked myself into Trevor and Urban, and I like their receivers. Zach Wilson, it's a Shanahan scheme. Right. They added some receivers. The line was supposed to be better. Fields in Chicago, that was the one where we definitely said, okay... That roster's moving in the wrong direction. Maybe the Allen Robinson and some speed. There is something to the idea that the so the best situation of any of them isn't playing, right? Trey Lance has the best situation of yeah. any of these guys and has got like six snaps so far in the NFL. Um, the next best situation is uh, Mac Jones with the Patriots, and he's the best performing of them so far. So there is something to the idea that like the worse the situation, the worse these quarterbacks are playing. And that, that's probably a pretty significant part of it. Like, people are losing their minds about the way that the game plan was set up for Justin Fields and all those kinds of things. And the game plan wasn't good, but it's more that everything around it was bad. Like, receivers weren't getting open. Uh, the route concepts were bad. The personnel on the offensive line was just getting wrecked by Cleveland's defensive line. The Browns were ready for what they were doing schematically. Like, everything was t- terrible. Um, 
And this is a theme, I think, for a lot of rookie quarterbacks, that they're, they come into bad situations, which is why the team is drafting number one or number three or whatever it is in the first place. Like the 49ers are an outlier because they had a randomly freaky bad season because of like a million injuries and traded up nine spots to get to where they were drafting. Um, most teams that are picking these best rookie quarterbacks, they suck. And they didn't like stop sucking in the offseason just because they drafted the quarterback. Whatever was wrong with them last year is still largely wrong with them when those guys get thrown out there and are expected to raise the level of everything around them. Yeah. It's a, it's a good point. We do see that a lot, you know, in the NFL, where, it's, again, teams are picking in the top 10 for a reason, and it does, it does take some time. If we rewind to the 2018 draft class, that was the time we saw five first-round picks. Their rookie seasons, we, Baker shows up in week three, and he looked legit. He had some bad games yeah. as a rookie, but he looked good. Like, he, he belonged. And immediately made a difference from, like, Tyrod Taylor, right? There was a right. visible difference the second he came in the game. And whilst that sort of seemed like a joke for the last couple of years, Tyrod Taylor showed this year he can start in the NFL and be pretty solid. Yeah, and Tyrod was definitely struggling at that time, but Baker upgraded there. Darnold never really hit the ground running. Uh, Josh Allen, the offense got better when he went in, but that was the year I think they had Derek Anderson that started a game at one point. Like Matt Barkley was starting. I, th I think they were just a mess offensively. The Bills, Josh Allen kind of gave them a little bit of a boost, but it was one of those ugly like overthrows and scramble here and there and great throw here and there. So Josh Allen still wasn't great. We've talked about his rookie grades. Josh Rosen was, was terrible from mm. start to finish, and he had a terrible situation in Arizona. And then Lamar Jackson clearly boosted the Ravens. They won a ton of games with him, but a lot of his passing issues remained right he was an incredible runner but his passing issues his accuracy passing grade wasn't great passing stats weren't great but they found a way to win games and you saw there was something different about him as a runner so two out of five baker and lamar made a pretty good difference as a rookie allen showed flashes darnold showed flashes but that was what you came out of that year saying yeah they showed flashes they got to be more consistent and then with rosen it was like okay boy he better take a big step forward here and he was he was out in a year with kyler so that class has ended up being pretty good now that Darnold is a reasonable player. And it takes time and it took a couple of those guys some time. And, and, and it, I, you know, there are ebbs and flows with, with where they are in their development. And Darnold is probably now a pretty good example of how much situation does matter. Like he's gone from the Jets with Adam Gase and all of the things that that entailed, which was pretty a pretty bad situation from start to finish during his New York career. Goes to Carolina has a great set of receivers, clearly has a smart, offensive-minded coordinator in Joe Brady. Um, and, okay, the offensive line is still a concern. He's definitely on the left side. But all of a sudden, he looks a lot better. Now, again, he's facing some bad teams, so let's not go overboard with the Sam Darnold thing. But immediately— I know you won't. But immediately, he's taken a jump ahead of any— So, Teddy Bridgewater last year— had some pretty crappy box score statistics and was a disappointment compared to what we thought he would do given that improved environment, right? Yep. It's essentially the same environment. Um, Teddy Bridgewater had the worst PFF grade of his career. It was like 66, which is like uh, eight points lower than the baseline he had as a starter before that in Minnesota. So for him, it was disappointing, but he had the same average yards per attempt as Tom Brady last year. Like there's that, that offense was productive with Teddy Bridgewater in there. There's some numbers you can look at and say, hey, this guy was really, really moving the ball. Darnold, though, he's reaping the same benefits in terms of, hey, that, 
that offense is like an easy mode for quarterback, but his grade is also like 15 points higher than it's ever been. So Darnold isn't just taking advantage of the, the, the Joe Brady stuff the way Bridgewater was last year. He's also adding on top of it by being better than he's ever been before. He's taking the, adv- the advantages of playing the quarterback position on easy mode, and he's playing better than he's ever played before. Um, so I think that is like a perfect example of what kind of value add just a better environment can be, even if it's not perfect, just being yeah. better because that you, offensive line is still, still bad. Are you purposely answering Sean Hines' question? No. In our Twitter comments? Who's – no. Because who, Sean Hines asks, is Sam Darnold becoming the player we wanted him to be from college or is Joe Brady just that good? I mean, ultimately, Eric has made this point before, several times, in fact, Eric Eager from the forecast, that the worst thing – this the Darnold trade was bad because there's no good outcome for the Panthers, right? If Darnold sucks, all you did was burn whatever it costs to bring him in and the money it costs to pick up his fifth-year option, not good. If Darnold does – if Darnold plays better than he's ever played before, um, convinces you that maybe he's the guy, you sign him to a monster contract, Joe Brady probably gets a head coaching gig, leaves, and then arguably the reason that Darnold took a step forward is no longer there, mm-hmm. and you just handed him a monster contract off the strength of that. That's bad as well. Or, like, he absolutely balls out, plays amazingly, you hand him the massive contract, everything's good, even without Joe Brady, he remains good, but is probably unlikely to ever be i mean even then is he above the matt ryan inflection point right that line that you need what if he is legitimately good that so that's that's the only that's the only target they're left hitting for this to be a good move right is darnold not only exceeds expectations takes an improvement reacts to the environment positively but does all of that to the point where he becomes a top seven quarterback in the nfl even without joe brady there that just feels like a really, really small target to be aiming at. I think that's a stretch. I just think that's incredibly because, unlikely. <clears throat> to be honest, he is playing like the player that was in college. The thing I liked about Darnold is short area accuracy. Uh, up to up to 20 yards, he was fantastic at USC. The ball location was very good. Um, he, where he struggled was throwing the ball down the field. And we've still, we've still seen that. Like, he doesn't throw a good fade ball. He doesn't throw... Uh, you know, this elite, he's just not good throwing the ball down the field. Even accuracy-wise, he's middle of the pack this year. And, and the, the thing I bought into was, like, when we explained Josh Allen before his breakout, we were like, well, at least he's good up to 20 yards. That's the right. most consistent part, and the deep ball stuff tends to fluctuate. That was my reasoning for liking Darnold. His short area accuracy with the Jets, and how mu- however much you want to blame the system and receivers getting open and pressure and all this, his short area accuracy was nothing compared to what it was at USC right now passes up to 20 yards second highest accuracy percentage in the NFL so if the question is is Sam Darnold playing the way we thought he would in college yes now does he have more open throws and is Joe Brady like yes the answer is yes to all of the above Um, but I agree with you it is tough to invest in a Sam Darnold because at the end of the day like the guy he's behind is Kirk Cousins is he better than Kirk Cousins like you we sit here and talk about how the Kirk Cousins trade as well as he's playing right now the Kirk Cousins trade really hurts your team building effort it, it it just brings up the point of like that mid-level Kirk Cousins contract. might be the new Matt Ryan inflection point to be honest like Cousins might be the line now between guy that you want who elevates everything and is worth throwing the monster contract on and guy who doesn't you've changed your tune in three weeks why what did I say three weeks ago I mean you sat here for a while talking about 
explaining how the Cousins contract... I mean, I don't think he's above it, but I think he's the line. ...is man. a huge hindrance for the Vikings. Yes, it you is. You can't build a team. They Correct. have to get out from under Kirk Cousins. Uh-huh. I think all that's true, but I think he might be the line now. Like, he's below the line, but like the, line's, the, line, the line is above Kirk Cousins' head, is what I'm saying now. There's no... like. If it isn't him, who is it? But even the problem... It's not Matt Ryan anymore. The problem with the Matt Ryan stuff, though, is still the finances. Because when a guy that's Matt Ryan or better goes to the table, those guys become the highest paid quarterback. Yes. The highest paid quarterback isn't QB1. It's the most recent top 10 quarterback right. who's up for a contract. So when Matt Ryan goes to the table and he's getting all this money, it's a big part of why the Falcons roster is in the mess but if it isn't that Matt, they're in. If the Matt Ryan inflection point is no longer Matt Ryan because he isn't that guy anymore, who is it? I mean, it's either Cousins or Derek Carr, I would argue. You think Dak's above that? Because I would say Dak is probably there. Huh. Uh, Dak. Hmm. And so- here's, here's the interesting take on the 2016 draft class. I used to always tweet this out, right? Best player in that class. Year one was Dak. Year two was Wentz. Yeah. Year three was Goff. Right. Year four, I think, was, was Dak. And then he got hurt. And then and it's, it's been – and now it's Dak, yeah. right? So it fluctuated, but Dak was never the worst of that group. Goff had some bad years. Wentz had some really bad years. Dak was the most consistent of that group. He was the best quarterback of that group two out of the first four years, year one, year four. And now he's kind of established himself. He, he feels like the guy. And even if you look at Deshaun Watson's grades, they were just good. They were solid. And then they, they took a jump up. Dak is kind of like at, at that point, I think, where he's been consistently good. And now I feel good about him being consistently good going forward where we never had that level of consistency from Goff or Wentz. So I, I would, so Dak, to me, if you're asking about him two years ago, he's a mid-tier quarterback. He's tier three. He's in that same group as Stafford and Cam Newton and Kirk Cousins and all those guys. Now that other guys have retired or gotten older or whatever it is, there's a whole new top eight. And I think Dak is in that top six to eight and he's – he might be the cutoff point, which right. makes that contract okay. So the Dallas, they pay the contract. They know what they're getting into. Now go build around them and keep those playmakers handy. Does it make it okay? I don't I mean, know. Isn't Does that it? the point of the line that if he's not above it, you don't want the contract? He's the line or above it right now. I think Dak's the well, – it can't that, be the Dak. line or above it. It has to be one or the other. I think he's just above it. Okay. I feel good about Dak in the top eight going forward. He's throwing the ball pretty well. He had a couple – uh, turnover-worthy plays the other night, put the ball in harm's way a little bit against the Eagles, but I feel good about the way he's throwing the ball, standing in there, coming off that injury. And we've got 2019, he was really good. 2020, he was looking really good before he got hurt. And earlier this year, I think he's he's looking good again. This is the this is the best of that draft class. Dak, Wentz, and Goff. This is the longest, 19 to now, extended period of time where a guy in that class, those three, has looked this good for this long. And now I think Dak has separated him from the himself from the pack in the Goff Wentz debate. Okay. How's that? Nice. What else we got surprise wise? What else do we have surprise wise? Let me get back to uh the team page here. pff.com. Actually premium stats 2.0. So we have all the 3 and 0 teams. We talked about that on the daily. Um is the Washington football team a surprise or <clears throat> was that predictable? That their probably... defense has been this bad. Did we get fooled? Did the should we have listened to uh, the forecast folks I think a so. little bit more? Yeah, annoyingly, I think I think we maybe should have. Um, yeah, their defense is kind of proving that 
a lot of the times you're a product of like how good the quarterback was you faced. That being said, I think they are underachieving right now, that they're better than they're currently showing. They have some weird breakdowns in terms of like defensive statistical categories. They have like the lowest team in the NFL at um, missing tackles. Like they haven't missed virtually any. They are terrible on third downs. They just can't get off the field. Um, they're still doing a pretty good job in terms of pressure rate and those kinds of things. It's just it's this weird breakdown right now, but I think they are a better defense than they've shown, but probably not good enough that it was a reason to like buy into them this year based off everything else around them. The, um, here's the other thing I want to discuss. The old pass rush coverage debate, Sam. Just some interesting numbers along those lines. I tweeted them out last night. So if you have, P if you have premium stats, pff.com, you go, go to the team page, you, you sort by the top coverage grades, top coverage grades in the NFL. Broncos, 3-0. Panthers, 3-0. Cardinals, 3-0. Raiders, 3-0. Bills, 2-1. Cowboys, 2-1. They're up now. The Cowboys are up to sixth in coverage grade. How about that? And then the Saints at 2-1. So the top seven coverage grades are all two wins or better. The top four coverage grades, they're all 3-0. Now, could we have predicted the Broncos? Yep. Panthers, nope. Cardinals, nope. Raiders, nope. Bills, sure. They've had a good coverage unit. Cowboys definitely looked iffy. And the Saints were the team that were like, man, cornerback two, got to figure that out. So it's one of those things where it's like, I think we know you've got to be good in the back seven. We know you have to pass the ball and stop the pass, whatever it is. But predicting who's going to be there is very, very difficult still. Um, the other interesting component here is like the top pass rush teams, the Steelers, for instance, and then the football team that you said, they both have coverage grades in the 45s, third and fourth worst in the NFL. But their pass rush unit has stayed the same as last year. They were both the top five units. The Steelers are third from a pass rushing standpoint. The football team is fourth from a pass rushing standpoint, but they're not covering on the back end. Yeah, and the Steelers showed this week what happens to that coverage unit when they don't get any pressure. Like they got three pressures against the, the, can, the But can Bengals. I tell you, can I tell you this? Watch the Jamar Chase touchdown. So that meme, just to go back to the meme thing, Joe Burrow's laying on his back. He can't make the throw. If you want to reverse that, go to the Jamar Chase bomb and watch Cameron Hayward. Because I went back and the Steelers actually had a decent pass rush grade for this game against the Bengals. Because it was only 18 dropbacks. And they had, Hayward had three, and I think Melvin Ingram had two of these quick wins where the ball was out. And it, it was a win. It wasn't a good block. It was a good pass rush. And it didn't matter. So go watch the Jamar Chase touchdown and just watch Cameron Hayward. He beats his guy 2.1, 2.2 seconds. Whoop. I mean, really quick. But Joe Burrow's at the top of his drop and he's putting it out there. And this is what we're saying about open receivers protect the offensive line. That block was not good, but it didn't count as a pressure because it didn't pressure Joe Burrow because the ball was already out. This and Jamar is, Chase is wide open for a bomb. Which is also why the problem with the Justin Fields game plan was not five-man protections like your linemen are losing you're not going to fix that with a running back you're not going to fix that with a tight end trying to chip like the only way of fixing four or five guys getting their ass whooped every play is to get the ball out before it becomes a problem which you know is is easier said than done because obviously most of the time they're going to be playing with a single high safety they're going to be playing coverage because they're getting pressure with four so it's not like there's a ton of space to operate in but that's why the problem 
came at the end of the receivers. The problem came with what are you running with these route concepts? Where are where is the targeted designed area of the field right now? Because you need a way of getting this ball out quickly into some space, as opposed to let's just hope the line doesn't lose in a couple of seconds because it is. Yeah, I, it was just fascinating to me because you know. I tweeted this out, and, and Steelers fans were asking, like, well, it didn't seem like we got a lot of pressure against the Raiders or against the Bengals. And they didn't get a lot of pressure against the Bengals. They got a decent amount of pressure against Derek Carr and the Raiders. But Derek Carr and Joe Burrow in those two particular games were getting the ball out top five in the league, time to throw. And, those, and Josh Allen, the, the other reason why the Steelers' pass rush grade is so high is because in week one, Josh Allen had about 60 dropbacks, and they pressured him like crazy. And so they were winning and they were getting pressure. But that was the pressure was there because Josh Allen was holding onto the ball a lot longer. The pressure wasn't getting there against Carr and Burrow as much because they're getting rid of the ball. How do you make quarterbacks hold the ball better? You don't let them hit their open first read. You just I mean it's so um it's an interesting dynamic for me when you look at the Steelers and football team, both top five defenses last year, both top five in both pass rush and coverage grades. The pass rushes remain consistent. The coverage unit has not. It's only three weeks. All this stuff will fluctuate. The Steelers had to face Josh Allen, Derek Carr, and Joe Burrow is pretty. I mean, it's a it's a tough start too. And we always talk about it's dependent on who you play. So, uh, what else we think surprise wise here? I'm kind of sad that Tyra Taylor went down and they then dropped that game on Thursday night. The Texans are a surprise. Yeah, because yeah. like they're one and two. So you look at just the record and like I mean. Eh. One and three, we expect them to be 0 and three. Like, what difference is that? But the Texans won the first game handily, looked really good doing it. We're giving the Browns everything they could handle before Tyra Taylor went down. Like, the Texans are a real surprise based off what everybody thought. Like, they were this dumpster fire of a franchise coming into the season. They tried to end training camp early because they didn't want to deal with just the shitstorm that was flying around them. And then they go out there and they actually look like a pretty decent side. Yeah, I, I agree, man. Um, again, when you talk as much as we do about this stuff during the offseason, we, we can come out on both sides of the fence. Most of the, the most common analysis we had on the Texans is they're going to be terrible. But there were definitely some shows out there where we talked, like I at least talked myself into, maybe all these veterans help the team a little bit. And as long as they're not a disaster no. at quarterback. No, didn't buy it for a second. But that's what they were showing at least. Um, trading deadline, we got trade deadlines in a few weeks. I'm going to stick with my take, though, that the Texans are going to start. Half the roster is going to be traded yeah, away. Yeah, they're going to, they're going to trade, trade those dudes away and get some draft picks next year. Um, so they have, well, I was going to say they have a similar caveat in terms of, look, the, the statement win came against Jacksonville, who it turns out are terrible. But they were taking it to the Browns. I think that was impressive to show that they were going to be able to back it up. Tyra Taylor looked like the same guy he was in Buffalo before all those problems, medical or otherwise, and just losing jobs. Um, I, I'm surprised by them, and I'm intrigued to see sort of they become an interesting team to watch now for the rest of the year to see how that where that's going to land and how they're going to go throughout this year. Um, good. Just one last surprise: the Chiefs being one and two and at the bottom of the uh, the AFC West. That was a question on Twitter too, so we can answer that. The question was how how do you think the AFC West ends up, knowing what we know now? And we'll also answer that question. Yeah, the Chiefs being one and two. How much do we chalk up to? Looking back now, it looks like they played three pretty good teams. I mean, we knew going in that the Browns were good, the Ravens would be good, and we assumed the Chargers would be good. But yeah, all three of those teams are two and one. 
So they've played really good teams in the AFC so far. Is that why the Chiefs are one and two? Just, I mean, part of it. Just a little bit of the turnover luck not going their way this particular season. Um. Well, yeah. I don't think it's even turnover luck, but it's they've started turning the ball over a ton on offense, and that's shooting themselves in the foot repeatedly. Like even a team like the Chiefs, who we talked before, you know, there's so much about. Um, they, the margin for error for beating Kansas City is so small, you can't screw up. You've got to make all the right calls. You've got to make those correct fourth down decisions and steal an extra drive here and steal a percentage point of win probability there. And it still might not matter because it's Andy Reid, it's Travis Kelsey, it's Tyreek Hill, it's Patrick Mahomes. They're so hard to beat like that. Um, and to an extent, we've seen that over the past couple of weeks that they've been like turning the ball over like crazy and it's still come down to like one screw up at the end that differentiates whether or not they're beating Baltimore or beating the Chargers or not. But ultimately, you're seeing that even a team like the Chiefs cannot just keep throwing the ball to the opposition. It's going to cost you. There is no single statistic in football that has a tighter correlation to winning and losing games than turnovers. And it doesn't mean that's necessarily actionable because turnovers are largely luck a lot of the time. But it means you can't keep doing that or you're going to lose games. And right now, Kansas City has lost a couple of games that they wouldn't have lost, but for a, an abnormal degree of turnovers. I'll, I'll say that the Patrick Mahomes grade, too, is a surprise. Um, PFF founder Neil Hornsby used uh, PFF Ultimate, put a little last season. I forget what he used as the cutoff, but since last season, if you just put an arbitrary week in there, which is very, <laughs> very PFF NFL podcast of us, since week X of last year, week X, yeah, Mahomes grading in the 70s. Now, he's a 77.7 through three games this year. That's fine. And again, if you just grab a whole bunch of three-game stretches of quarterbacks' careers, you're going to see a million of these. So don't overrate it just because it's through three weeks. But, you know, the fact that he's not in the top eight or ten right now is a little bit of a surprise. I also tweeted the stat. Remember last year I was lamenting that people were going to use his touchdown-to-interception ratio last year, but through week 10 or so. It was 25 to 1, touchdowns to interceptions. People are going to use that as like MVP fodder. Here's why he's the MVP. Because at the time, he had 10 turnover-worthy plays. And his interception luck was ridiculous up until that point. And it pretty much remained throughout the whole season. Mahomes threw, threw a pass right to A.J. Terrell in the end zone of the Falcons in a game that the Chiefs should have lost to the Falcons if A.J. Terrell just holds on to the interception. That happened last year when the Falcons were terrible and the Chiefs looked like the juggernaut who was going to run through the league again so there's a fine line is my point last year at that point he had 10 turnover worthy plays one interception through three weeks right now he's got four turnover worthy plays and three interceptions now one of those turnover worthy plays is a fumble as well at least one of them was a fumble maybe two of them so the interception luck just isn't isn't there either receivers stopping on routes and various things like that so it is just a fascinating dynamic that you know, the turnovers just going the other way and they played some good teams. So right now you've got the Raiders and the Broncos atop that division at three and oh, the Chargers two and one, and Kansas City rooted to the bottom at one and two. How do you anticipate that division finishing now? I'll go Chiefs. Is am I am I sticking to my priors too much? Well, I tell you what, uh the power rankings say. I was gonna uh, let, you let me get my first. answer first. Right. Chiefs Chargers, Raiders, Broncos. Okay. So the PFF power rankings, uh, you just Google that, you'll get there. It's on the betting tab up top and then power rankings if you want to navigate from pff.com. Um, a whole bunch of data in there. Maybe, 
rates of making the playoffs, uh, remaining strength of schedule, how good, how hard their strength of schedule has been so far, all this kind of stuff. But one of the things in there is essentially the average number of wins that the team is going to end up with based on simulating the season 10,000 times, which is what the, the computers do. So based filter by division, that's cool. Yeah. Based off that, the power rankings say that Kansas City will still win the division with an average win total of 10.8, so essentially 11 wins. Um, next up, the Raiders, 9.9, 10 wins. Uh, then the Chargers, 8.4, and then Denver, 8.2. Yeah, so they I can, have Kansas City jumping from the bottom, from the ass end of this table, back up to the top, but the Raiders maintaining their closest challenge. Yeah, I, th that was actually what I debated, was Raiders and Chargers 2 and 3. Because Derek Carr is our, what, number 2 graded quarterback right now? And that's what makes up the difference. The other cool part about the power rankings is it shows how much the QB is worth. So you have Mahomes, like if Mahomes didn't play and you just replaced him with Sam Monson, 8.5 point spread, it's going to change, right? Maybe, maybe a little more if it's you. But say Chad Henney. Mahomes is eight and a half. We have Carr at five and a half and Herbert at five. So Carr would have a little bit more impact on the spread. And I think that's about probably the difference in the power rankings putting the Raiders over the Chargers. The Raiders also have multiple years of just a really good offense that we've seen. And it's probably, you could probably rely on them a little bit more maybe than the Chargers. Denver is the tricky one because they've looked great, but they've got the, Easiest schedule. There you go. <laughs> Easiest schedule to date. Chargers are fourth. Raiders are 18th. Chiefs are sixth. So the Chiefs and Chargers have played a tougher schedule than the two, three, and O teams. Yeah, I mean, Denver's is is 100% down to, hey, look, Bridgewater's played well, but they've had the easiest schedule in the NFL. But for the re remainder of their schedule, it's the sixth hardest. Like it goes from one end of the spectrum to the other. So as good as Denver have looked, the data essentially just says, we're not ready to buy into Bridgewater yet based off the strength of schedule, which is getting incrementally harder down from, from now on. It is interesting to me that the, the, all the other teams, though, have pretty difficult schedules. I mean, the, the Chiefs are at, at eighth most difficult schedule, which is also tied with the Ravens. That means we're going to see a lot, of, a lot of good football games yeah. going forward. I see Eric saying he's buying the Bucks like crazy, in part because they've got the 27th most difficult schedule. So even though they're coming off this sour taste of a loss with the Rams like we've talked about this week the Rams have to go through this gauntlet and the Bucs they've got some tough games too but for the most part you know they should be able to uh to right. get back on track. the power ranking still has the Bucs with essentially the best win total by the end of the year I don't want to say I'm surprised by this but I think an early season trend is teams we're seeing more fourth downs and all that stuff the fourth down discussion is it's exhausting sometimes is and then you've got the Joe Judge quote we could talk about that quickly too in a second the trend that i'm seeing is teams attacking the favorites the bucks the chiefs the teams that look like juggernauts that with mahomes and brady and the playmakers and the whole thing look like they're unstoppable they're attacking them with aggression and i think that's it's needed and and it's smart and it's good and that's you know the chiefs have we talked about all the fourth down decisions teams have made against the chiefs the Bucs teams aren't even turning to hand the ball off to their running back for the most part unless the game's out of hand like with the Rams. They are attacking through the pass. They are, they are, they're saying, look, we got to get to 30 points. Got to get to 30 points as quickly as possible because that's how we're going to beat the Chiefs. And that's how we're going to beat the Bucs. So I think teams should continue to do that and attack those teams with aggression and say, realistically, we can't hold down these offenses for that long. So we got to try to score as many points as possible. 
Yeah. Just a trend. Okay. See you nothing on that. Now you want to crap on Joe Judge? <laughs> Do you want to read the quote? Uh, something about if if games were won on Excel spreadsheets, Bill Gates would be a coach or something. What the hell is the quote? Where is it? Basically, like, don't don't trust the spreadsheets. Uh, where is he? If, uh, if Excel won games, Bill Gates would be killing it. Now, as far as I'm aware, Bill Gates is one of the five most rich humans in the world. I'd say he's probably killing it already. But that's besides the point, Steve. Now, why do did, why did we even bring it up? It's I know. just, it's exhausting. <laughs> Look, I, I think if, if our listeners are involved in the, you know, follow enough people in the football analytics community and all that stuff, they're probably exhausted too. Because if you follow enough people, every time somebody punts on fourth and one, it's like tweet, 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 attack, 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 you idiot, blah, blah, blah. Here's all the win probability you lost. And all those things are correct and right. I also think that this part of coaching is a fraction of what a coach is supposed to do. But it's also just an obvious one. Yeah. And an easy one. Mm -hmm. Right? Yes. Look, there, there's, he's right. Football is not played on spreadsheets. Um, but the spreadsheets... On, on the pitch, exactly. Actually. <laughs> the spreadsheets can give you essentially a guideline for specific situations that take the gut feel out of it and therefore make you more accurate, right? Gut feel is nice, but there's a bunch of things you feel in your gut that you're just flat wrong about all the time. I'm not even talking about football now, right? How many things have you like thought or had a feeling about and then when you actually looked it up, you're just wrong, you're off because you're, it was your gut feel... And that's not a particularly good measurement of almost anything, right? So the spreadsheets and the analytics and the numbers can give you, they can just make you better in a specific situation. Um, famous rugby player, Steve, Paul O'Connell once said that he just wants to be the best at everything that doesn't require any talent. Connie. Yeah, yeah. Because why would you not, right? Like it, the, the stuff that requires like just natural God-given ability is difficult to improve at, right? You can practice for years, but ultimately you're just not going to be as good as the guy that's better than you, right? But if I can get better at all the things that require no talent, just require working, that can get me, maybe I'm a better player than this guy now because I put in hard work and I got better at all the stuff that didn't require just natural ability. It's, it's just a simple thing. So if you're a head coach, why would you not want to maximize the one area where it's idiot-proof? Like all you got to do is follow the, the information and make sure you're making what the data says is the correct decision at the correct time because over the course of – like the longer the period of time that builds up, the more percentage points of win probability I'm stealing. And yeah. if over one game, maybe it's 1%, it doesn't amount to anything. Over a season, maybe it becomes 10% and suddenly I've stolen a game from somewhere. Over a 10-year career, suddenly I've robbed the rest of the league out of like three or four wins that I wouldn't have had if I was just going by gut feel and instinct. In addition to that, it's well said. Head coach is basically a CEO. GM's like a CEO. I mean, they are they they oversee a lot of different people. How many decisions decisions do they make without taking in information? So, how as a head coach, you're gonna when you choose your offensive and defensive coordinator. You have a resume with some information and you study what the guy's done and you hire him. You take information and you make decisions. That's what their job is. I, and they, But they view the fourth down decision as like this, this crazy world that they don't even want to jump into. You know what the problem with, with going 
I do this on gut instinct because this is how it's done. Yeah, because it's all on you when you screw it up. No, the problem with it is there's no feedback loop for analyzing the call you made, right? Yeah. Other than like the shitstorm that gets created by the fact that you got it wrong and didn't succeed, right? But when David Cully made that crazy decision to like accept, what did he, turn down the penalty in order to punt the ball away, right? And obviously everyone was like, well, what? That's the most ridiculous decision anybody's ever made. Yeah. Now he came out in an interview and, eventually, and basically said, you know what, if I had that over again, of course I would accept the penalty and make them play the, the longer down. Like that's what you do. And he's like, I thought about it and you're right. Like that's what I would have done. Most calls, that's just not happening. They're just like, well, what are the numbers? The numbers don't know what I was thinking, which is my left guard, like the, you know, all that crap. They're not even, th- they never question whether the call was right after the fact, which is a problem. Because if you're just saying, well, I went off gut instinct and I know what I'm doing, therefore my gut instinct was correct, whether or not it worked out or not, where's the, where's the area of growth? Where is the opportunity to get better in future? How can you improve the process if you're just saying, I went off my gut and sometimes it, it works out and sometimes it doesn't? Like, that's just a bullshit process. Yeah. It, it, there's, there's no, that, that's bad. That doesn't, that doesn't lead you to a, a, a development. If you work with the data, at least you can say, well, okay, we went with the data. It didn't work out. Why didn't it work out? Now let's see if that was a problem with, with the numbers. We can actually check whether the reason this one failed is something that isn't being captured in the data that told me to go for it. And maybe it is, and you just caught the bad end of variance. Or maybe it isn't, and you can actually improve that process. Like, it's just a better way of doing it. The other part is your contemporaries are, are doing it. Are doing it. They are maximizing that advantage. Right. So you've got 32 peers in a, in a similar position, and a lot of them are taking the time to learn this stuff or have somebody in their ear and we or seen... have somebody do the work for them and explain it and, and whatever. And it... one more point. The Manning broadcast the other night, right? There was a point where Dallas went for it. So they could have either kicked a field goal to go up 16, I believe it was, or, the, or they could go for it on fourth and one. I didn't even look up what the number said. My, my gut was that going for it on like the two-yard line was probably the right move. That's what my gut said. Hmm. My gut for what the numbers would have said would be to go for it. Because if you don't get it, again, the team's got it. They're still up two scores. Right. And they got to go 98 yards. On that drive, the Cowboys were a train wreck. And, you know, Peyton is the best part on that broadcast is how frustrated Peyton gets, right? Mm. When he sees bad offense, (laughs) right? So he's watching Dallas and he's like, Mike McCarthy, oh, you're not making the right call here and you should have done this. And nobody's lined up and nobody's set. Their first three plays of this drive were trash. They were terrible. And Peyton's like, because of those first three plays, I would never go for it. My offense is out of sync. Everything's terrible. So they go for it anyway. And Peyton's just shaking his forehead and he's just upset. And then they get it. Dak drops back, pass protection's perfect. He's got about six seconds to throw, finds the open man, the receiver uh, in the end zone, they get it. To me, that, just like the, the Jamar Chase argument could be summed up in one play, this play sums up the argument against, well, you don't know how bad my offense is doing and the defensive line's killing us and all that stuff. If you use the three previous plays that Dallas had to predict the fourth one, you never would have gone for it. Right. But there's way more than three plays going into that decision. And we've You're- seen in the last two weeks alone how much, um, like the Baltimore Ravens and the Los Angeles Chargers both used going forward on fourth down in a situation where a lot of, where you don't have to go back very many years 
where neither of them would have even thought about it. And they both used that call to beat the Chiefs, right? Those are wins that they may not, probably wouldn't have gotten if they hadn't gone for those calls, and they did it. Like, you, if you're the guy that's like, I'm going on gut instinct and I'm just doing what I feel, you're going up against teams that are doing that. Like, they're beating you. They are winning because of the decisions they're making that you're not willing to entertain because only Bill Gates uses spreadsheets. Like, it's just, yeah. it's just not smart. So people asking me in the comments, I was not trying to say my gut. I was using that as a figure of speech. I did not run the numbers on whether or not the Cowboys should have gone for it or not. I really don't care in this particular instance. I'm not trying to say that they were right or wrong. The point I'm trying to make is the reason why coaches say they don't want to go for it is when they're, when they're not feeling good, when the offense doesn't feel good, when it's not flowing. And this particular situation showed three straight plays where the Cowboys were out of sync and horrible, but the fourth play, they were fine and scored a touchdown. So if they had used those three, for last three plays to make that decision, it would have been wrong. So anything else you want to chat about today? It's like yeah. freestyle time. I'm done with surprises. I'm out of them. All right. Well, it's been a great season so far. And uh, I'm enjoying the, the midweek show. We can, because we, we're just not doing enough podcasts. No, yeah, yeah. It's a real, uh, you know, it's a real Seven podcasts a week. We're not enough. So we had to do an eighth. Uh, you guys get us. And for, a ninth because it was a bonus daily. <clears> there week. was a bonus daily. So go check out the daily. As of Wednesday, there's already, what, four episodes up this week, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, because there was a bonus. Right. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and a bonus. So we talked all about the Josh Gordon signing for the Kansas City Chiefs. So go subscribe to the PFF NFL Daily if you have not already. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. We'll be back tomorrow previewing all of the week four action. See you guys.